U.S. economy is being held hostage by longshore labor at major ports. What can be done about it? Hi, everybody. I'm Bob Bowman, Managing Editor of Supply Chain Brain, and this is the Supply Chain Brain Podcast. recent years, it seems as though every dispute between management and labor at West Coast ports has to be accompanied by a worker slowdown, employer lockout, or the threat of a strike. We pay a huge price for those events. Take the 11-day West Coast lockout of 2002. It cost the nation $16 billion in disruptions, delays, and lost sales, according to my guest today. Diana first got Roth. She's a former chief economist with the U.S. Department of Labor and now a director of Economics 21 and senior fellow at the Manhattan Institute for Policy Research. And while she doesn't quote a price for the latest dispute, the slowdown by members of the International Longshore and Warehouse Union that brought West Coast port operations to a virtual halt in the early part of this year, she argues that it had a huge impact on importers and exporters and the U.S. economy. The problem, she says, is that we're becoming increasingly dependent on international trade. So when the flow of goods through our ports is disrupted, it has serious consequences for the nation's economic health. But First Got Roth has a solution. She proposes that port longshore labor come under the jurisdiction of an entirely different law, one that would prevent slowdowns and shutdowns, yet still allow for management and labor to agree on new contracts. So here is my conversation with Diana Firstgott-Roth. Diana Firstgott-Roth, welcome to the program. It's great to be with you. You're the author of an E21 issue brief entitled Held Hostage, U.S. Ports, Labor Unrest, and the Threat to National Commerce. Held hostage, you're not mincing any words there. What's the situation out there as you see it with regard to port labor? The problem is that the situation on the West Coast ports lends itself to slowdowns about every five years. And we have just recovered from one such slowdown, which took place in the fourth quarter of 2014. That actually depressed uh, GDP in the early part of the year. And we can look forward to repeated West Coast port slowdowns if something isn't done. And what I am proposing is uh, to move ports under the Railway Labor Act, uh, which means that there would be fewer disruptions at the time the contract was renegotiated. Okay, well, let's get let's hold on for a moment and get to that in a second with regard to the actual solution. I just want to help to outline the problem just a little bit more right now. You describe it as a growing threat to national commerce. Why do you put it in those words? Because more and more uh, of our GDP is based on trade. We have a lot of imports. We have a lot of exports. And when there are problems with ports, then we have apples, for example, that are rotting on the docks. 
our exporters cannot get their goods out. Our importers who want to have goods to stock the shelves for Christmas, as happened last year, have a hard time getting their goods back in the country. So trade has become increasingly important to the U.S. economy. A hundred years ago, far less of our GDP was based on trade, but now it's becoming increasingly important. I believe that you said that the uh, slowdown and lockout in 2002 on the West Coast resulted in a $15.6 billion loss for U.S. imports. Got to be even worse uh, here in 2014-2015. Actually, it it, uh, wasn't worse because in 2002, it was basically an 11-day strike. In 2014, Mm -hmm. the strike was averted, but there was a series of slower disruptions. So right. it was okay. not yeah. as expensive as the $16 billion cost in 2002. The contracts are only for five or six years. So in another five years, we can look forward to another disruption. That, that's the problem. Do you know of what the price tag was this time around with the slowdown? As you say, not a strike outright, but certainly there were dozens of ships moored waiting to unload and, and load their, their freight. What was the cost this time? Uh, We don't have a precise cost of that. We haven't been able to calculate it yet. But we are still seeing, for example, now there was a headline in the paper about the decline in East Coast port traffic. Well, that's because during the West Coast slowdowns, shippers would take their goods through the Panama Canal and to the East Coast. So that added a lot of extra time, and it also added extra cost to products. So it's difficult to calculate the entire cost of the slowdown, because part of it is borne in higher prices to consumers as importers get their goods into the country using a more expensive route. Because, of course, to go from Asia through the Panama Canal, uh, then up to the East Coast ports, it's far more expensive than going directly from Asia to the West Coast. Okay, so how does it work today? U.S. port workers are under the jurisdiction of the National Labor Relations Act and the National Labor Relations Board, correct? How is it supposed to work in the case of a dispute such as this? Well, in a dispute such as this, there's uh, prolonged negotiation, as there was. But the important thing from the point of view of consumers is that dock workers are allowed to do slowdowns and disruptions, which they would not be allowed to do under the Railway Labor Act. Under the Railway Labor Act, the president could call uh, an emergency mediation board, and that would present a solution to the two parties. And mediation would take place and they would have to come to some agreement and the slowdowns would not occur. The president can step in now and indeed did in 2002 uh, invoking Taft-Hartley, the Taft-Hartley Act. But I guess that's not the same thing as what you're, what you're recommending here. Uh, well, for, for that matter, the president didn't step in in an early fashion in, uh, in this last case. So well, I guess exactly. that's not a solution. Right, exactly. He did use Taft-Hartley in 2002 when they went on strike, but this did not get to the full strike. 
So mm-hmm. he didn't feel as though it was necessary to step in. He did send his Labour secretary, Thomas Perez, out to negotiate. And shortly after that, the parties came to an agreement. But that was after many millions of dollars of goods were stuck, both unable to get in and also unable to get out. So it was a very unsatisfactory solution. Besides, if there is a president who's sympathetic towards unions, as President Obama is, because he gets many, many campaign contributions from unions, he would be unlikely to step in right at the beginning and say that this has to end. Yeah, but just to get our terms exactly straight here, in 2002, it was not technically a strike. It was a lockout. However, it was precipitated by a worker slowdown, right? Right, right, exactly, yes. yes. And it seems like that's almost what the ILWU was hoping would happen this time also, that they slowed down and basically almost dared or wished that employers would impose a lockout so then they could point the finger and say, hey, we didn't strike, you locked us out. But they weren't biting this time. Right, right, exactly. But one could contrast that with what happened in 2011 when the president appointed an emergency board to deal with a potential railroad strike. And hardly anyone in the fall of 2011 knew that all the railroads could have gone on strike. But there was this presidential emergency board which uh, sat down with the two parties and within a month they had an agreement and there were no particular headlines about it. There was no slowdown in commerce. Consumers were not disturbed and the problem was worked out. Now when President Coolidge signed the Railway Labor Act into law, he did it because he said the railroads were very important and Americans should not have a their lives disrupted by a strike. Then he added airlines in 1936. Well, ports have become increasingly important. And now, for the same reasons that President Coolidge signed the act into place in the first place, ports should be added. Yeah, you know, I guess that uh, labor would argue, port labor would argue that the solution lies in arbitration, which arises out of collective bargaining. But if, as the, in this case, the union simply refused to extend the provisions of the expired agreement, thereby arbitration wasn't an option and they could just do what they want at will. So uh, I guess arbitration doesn't work if you don't allow the, uh, the agreement to extend. There are certain advantages to being for unions to be under the Railway Labor Act rather uh, than the National Labor Relations Act. One is that it's impossible to decertify a union, so the workers uh, would not be able to opt out of the union. Uh, There isn't right to work under the Railway Labor Act. So employees would have to be members of a union as a condition of their employment. You know we have right to work states, 25 right to work states now. Mm -hmm. where employees do not have to join a union as a condition of their employment. Right to work doesn't hold under the Railway Labor Act. So it's not as though we're pushing away unions and saying you don't matter. There are actually advantages to unions of being under the Railway Labor Act. Under the National Labor Relations Act, which which, uh, which holds jurisdiction over port 
workers today, the ILWU, at least in theory, could have been decertified then. Right, exactly, yes. Not well, to, which isn't to say that was ever going to happen, but at least it was theoretically a possibility. It, theoretically, right. it, was, it was a possibility. But in that case, uh, the National Labor Relations Board would have had to consider the decertification petition. It would have had to put it forward. Uh, workers would have had to vote on it. Decertification is actually a fairly lengthy process. It's very interesting the way the National Labor Relations Board has speeded up the elections for union representation, going from an average of 37 days to about 15 days for the vote to join a union. They haven't done the same thing for decertification. So you cannot now hold an election in 13 days if you want to decertify your union only if you want to join the union. So the National Labor Relations Board does uh, make it somewhat difficult to decertify, so it's unlikely that the unions would have been able to decertify, uh, even if the workers had wanted to do that, and it's unclear that that's something they would have wanted to do. Ports have been essential to U.S. commerce for a long time. This did, didn't just happen yesterday that they became that they achieve the position that they have. I mean, we have been doing huge amounts of international trade for decades, and yet throughout those decades, ports have not been, or, or port labor has not been brought under under the uh, Railway Labor Act. Why not all these years has it, has it not happened? Why are we only talking about it now? Well, I think that with the West Coast port lockout in 2002, and then these latest slowdowns and disruptions last year, which uh, really did have an effect on uh, GDP, drove the GDP growth rate in the first quarter. The first estimates were, in fact, negative. And then it was one half of a percent, six-tenths of a percentage point increase it worked out to be in the first quarter. So I think people now are starting to take this more seriously. And international trade is growing just as a percent of the U.S. economy. So we find we are in, we're more dependent on imports, especially in the major retail selling season of Christmas. And our exporters are exporting more perishable products, more agricultural products. So they are really held hostage, as the title of my paper says, because if this isn't resolved, their goods just rot on the docks. Uh, as is the case with many, many perishable products. There's also products that are time-sensitive, that if they're not delivered in a certain time frame, they're not useful anymore. For example, apples, again, for the Chinese New Year. Certain products associated with Chinese New Year celebrations, if it gets there afterwards, it's not as valuable. You also have the case where there's a lot of competition among different countries. And after the 2002 problems, Japan changed its supplies of almonds from California to Turkey. It couldn't get the almonds that it needed. Almonds are very important in Japan. So there was a permanent change with a permanent loss to the U.S. agricultural industry. So this has become more and more important. And it's time to make this relatively minor change that would make ports work more smoothly. And I yeah. would say under these uh, presidential uh, emergency boards, 
it's not that unions lose. Uh, they, uh, they do very well, I would say, out of the decision makers. And the uh, people who are appointed uh, often favor organized labor. And it has the advantage to consumers that their lives are not disrupted. You know, this is just an anecdote, but I knew there was a real problem when my 16-year-old told me in the winter that he could not sell his bicycle. I said, Richard, you are planning on selling your bicycle. He said, well, Mom, the one I want to buy is stuck in a ship off the coast of California. And it cannot <laughs> he knew get that, huh? He, wow. uh, he knew this. It was a Fuji bicycle coming from Taiwan. So he knew he couldn't sell his current Fuji because he wouldn't mm-hmm. be able to get a new Fuji. That's what the bike shops were telling these kids. So when it comes down to my 16-year-old knowing that there's consequences from this port strike, I know that it's time to do something. Wow, that's amazing. So I I guess the salient difference between the National Labor Relations Act and the Railway Labor Act is that the NLRA, as you point out, is not designed to ensure ongoing operations in the event of a strike, whereas the RLA is. Is that a correct assumption? That is correct, yes. Yes, exactly. Yeah, that's and just okay. the way in uh, 2011, there was the threat of a strike, and it was immediately resolved within a month because railroads are considered an important sector of the economy under the Railway Labor Act, connected okay, so, with transportation. So you started to guide us through the way the RLA would work in a situation like this and the involvement of the National Maritime Board. So let me back you up and ask you then to, to in, in more detail, describe how would that work if the ILWU, uh, it, in this last situation, had been under the jurisdiction of the Railway Labor Act and they had started to slow down as they did, what exactly would have happened in that kind of regulatory environment? Well, first of all, under the RLA, labor contracts do not expire. So the labor contracts would have continued. Instead, the contract becomes what's called amendable, and it remains in force until a new agreement is reached. And the RLA stipulates that management and labor can at first begin negotiating contracts without outside help although the National Mediation Board acknowledges that the majority of cases would require mediation. So then, if the negotiations are unsuccessful, federal mediation is required uh, before unions and employers can engage in what's known as self-help actions, such as slowdowns, strikes, and lockouts. And generally, this federal mediation arrives at a solution and the parties go back to uh, the the, uh, workers go back to work. It's a binding decision on the part of the National Mediation Board? Well, if the parties uh, don't reach a settlement after initial mediation, they commit to a month-long cooling period. And if the dispute is a substantial threat to transportation, the Presidential Emergency Board is created, and yes, they have to abide by those provisions. Now, when you say the Presidential Emergency Board, is that to be distinguished from the National Mediation Board? Are those two different bodies, or are they two terms for the same thing? No, they are two different bodies. The National Mediation Board has members who arbitrate on a continuous basis. The Presidential Emergency Board is a specific group of individuals appointed by the President 
precisely to work out this individual problem. It is not sitting uh, in, 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 in a permanent capacity, whereas the National Mediation Board is sitting in a, personal capa- in, in a permanent capacity. Who are those people on the emergency board? Are they, you say appointed by the president. Are they from industry? Are they lawyers? Are they professional arbitrators? Do, do the employers in the union have any input as to who they are? Five members are appointed by the president and two by the National Mediation Board. And I don't have in front of me the people who were appointed in 2011, which was the last time a presidential emergency board was appointed. But the president can appoint anyone he likes. He generally appoints specialists in this particular area. He wouldn't just pick someone off the street, for example. So they would, he would pick people who were familiar with labor and familiar with the industry. And the National Mediation Board uh, would do the same thing. And then they get together and work out the problem. Yeah, because one of the big messes that we got into on the West Coast in this last go-round was over the whole question of arbitration and who gets to choose the arbitrators. IOWU apparently was unhappy with the fact that so many arbitrations had gone against them over the years that they wanted to reconfigure or rejigger the way in which those individuals were chosen. But they wouldn't have any specific input as to who's chosen for this presidential emergency board, would they? No, no, they wouldn't, not unless they have, uh, well, they might have contacts who could call up the president. But in general, the process has worked very well. In fact, the National Mediation Board process usually works very well without having to have a presidential emergency board. Since the National Mediation Board was founded in 1925, 97% of all cases have been resolved without interruption. And since 1980, this rate has risen to 99%. In 2013, there were no strikes in the U.S. airline or railroad industries. So the idea is that this is all taking place, that the, the mediation board is, is intervening before there is any kind of industrial action by the union, before there's any kind of slowdown or anything of that kind, correct? Uh, that's correct, yes. yes. So I just wonder, I mean, what's it, to stop... The, what's to stop the union from the same hijinks and that they've been involved in up to now, you know, denying even that they're doing what they're doing, even as they do it, citing safety concerns, citing the need to suddenly get off the job and have meetings, you know, do all that kind of stuff and yet never really admit that they are actually involved in any kind of action. Would that sort of stuff just not be possible to do under this system? Well, we have found that uh, it is avoided. It does not happen in the railroad and airline industry. If ports were moved under the same system, then the same thing would likely apply to ports. I'm not saying that it would be 100% successful. There can always be some people who would do slowdowns, but it's uh, very much discouraged, and I believe there are penalties for doing it. Oh, okay, the penalties, that would help, I guess. You described this then as a minor change, really, but what, in fact, is the political reality of this actually happening? I'm an economist rather than a politician, so I'm not good at making political pros- uh, you know, uh, forecasts. I can forecast the past, the future I have more trouble with, but I think that it's not a major change. I think that uh, it's something that could be accomplished with relatively little problem. And there are people on Capitol Hill, some committees who are looking at it right now. 
but I'm not a political science expert, so there's probably other people who would be better informed on the likelihood of passage than I. Well, I guess we'll just have to see, but in the meantime, we have a very excellent article in the E21 issue brief of April 2015. Again, it's called Held Hostage, U.S. Ports, Labor Unrest, and the Threat to National Commerce. I will link to that article in our show notes. And I want to thank you so much, Diana Fershgott-Roth, for being with us today to help us understand this situation. Thank you. It's great to be with you. Thanks so much for having me on. That was my conversation with Diana Fershgott-Roth of Economics 21, talking about how to prevent future labor slowdowns and stoppages at U.S. ports. We're online at www.supplychainbrain.com, where we post a new episode of this podcast. We're streaming or downloading every Friday. You can also read my Think Tank blog, watch thousands of videos, and access all of our other content, including the digital edition of our magazine. Look for us on Facebook and LinkedIn. Follow us on Twitter, at SC Brain. You can also download and subscribe to the podcast on iTunes. Got any comments or suggestions on this or any episode? Email me at rbowman at supplychainbrain.com. See you next time.